I've been here in the past and I stood in the center, but now I'm appropriately off to the left. <laughs> it was an evening in June 1959 when I gave Belva, who was soon to become my wife, an engagement ring. We were out for a walk. We often took walks after supper, but this time I steered her into the, onto the grounds of the Episcopal Church, which was possibly the most beautiful building in our hometown. I opened the door and we went in. I'm sure she was wondering what we were doing there. We walked halfway down the aisle and we then sat down together in the middle of an otherwise empty church. Without a word, I put the ring on her hand, and we sat there for several minutes, absorbed in the mystery of what we were doing. And then we got up silently, left the church, and continued walking. We walked through the park across the street from the church, and then into an old-fashioned ice cream parlor that was old-fashioned even then. We had small dishes of ice cream. You had to eat the ice cream slowly. It came with little spoons. There were other folks in there, but that evening they were invisible. As we ate our ice cream, we looked into each other's faces and we laughed. In fact, every time we looked at each other, we laughed. We laughed and laughed. It was a strange reaction. What was happening wasn't funny. We weren't being silly. We laughed out of happiness, out of conspiratorial joy, out of astonishment that we were doing this thing. We laughed for reasons we'll never understand, and we've never tried. Anybody who knows anything about life and making it through knows how important laughter is. We may not understand why, but we know that a gift for laughter and a capacity for relishing life are important parts of the good life. We treasure those gifts in ourselves. We gravitate toward people who make us laugh and people who have a knack for laughing easily. And still, laughter remains a mystery. A good sense of humor, they say, is a mark of intelligence and emotional awareness. It reflects a genuine capacity for joy and for grief. But in a fundamental way, laughter is also spontaneous, involuntary, unpredictable, and subversive. It takes us by surprise. It's one of the ways we remain a puzzle to ourselves. I remember when I was a kid, a group of us would sometimes do things that would make our teachers or our parents angry, and they would scold us. But there was something about being in trouble and being scolded that struck us as comical. And we couldn't help ourselves. We'd begin to giggle. Boy, would that get grown-ups riled up. <laughs> That's enough. Stop your laughing. It's not funny. But the more they insisted it wasn't funny, the funnier it became. I wasn't always good at controlling my laughter when I was a kid, and I'm not always good at it now. Laughter is not something you can turn on and off at will. 
Occasionally, when Belva and I were going together, we double-dated with my brother and with Belva's best friend, Catherine. There was one time where the four of us went to a movie together, and I don't know how it happened. We were usually pretty prompt people, but we got to the theater late. And by the time we climbed over people's legs and took our place in the middle of a row, the movie had already reached a very serious moment. You could have heard a pin drop in the theater. On the screen was a man lying in a hospital bed. He was wrapped in bandages from head to toe, and he was groaning. But we had just arrived. We had no idea who the man in bandages was or what had happened to him. Well, for some unknown, totally innocent reason, the groaning and the seriousness of it all struck Catherine as funny. We could sort of hear her stifling her laughter and see her shaking. The next thing you know, we were all holding our breath and shaking silently, trying to do our best to keep from laughing. And then we lost it. We began to laugh, really laugh, so that everybody around us could hear us. People were annoyed. We could feel it. <laughs> it was embarrassing, but we couldn't help ourselves. The amazing thing is they didn't kick us out. I also remember a very different experience. I was a freshman on a college campus where it was a tradition to haze freshmen for the first couple months. We were required to wear a beanie with a big M on the front, and on our shirt or our jacket, a badge with our name. And then we had to walk around with our trouser legs sort of rolled up at least a couple of times. An upperclassman could stop us anywhere on campus and ask us to parrot information from the school handbook, or they could invent some little routine just to harass and humiliate us. The hazing was a real nuisance at times, but I mostly didn't pay any attention to it. Hey, Frosh, what are you lower than, they'd ask you, and absentmindedly you would answer, whale shit. But some of the, some of the encounters weren't so innocuous. A group of them had me stand on a manhole cover and ordered me to laugh. <laughs> That's not laughing. We said laugh. <laughs> What's the matter, Frosh? You don't think it's funny. The whole episode lasted maybe two or three minutes between classes, but it was two or three very uncomfortable minutes. I was reminded that it's very hard to laugh on demand especially when you're the butt of the joke. In spite of how important a sense of humor is in our lives, humor has not received a great deal of scholarly attention. Nothing like the attention that's been devoted to grief and sadness, passion and love, or even anger and anger management. Philosophers and scholars have largely ignored laughter, even doctors and psychologists haven't had much to say. I guess maybe because laughter is not a serious activity, it's not worthy of serious study. And when scholars do talk about laughter, they don't agree on what it's all about, or even whether it's a good thing. Some interpreters, going all the way back to Plato, consist, consider laughter an expression of arrogance and derision. Laughter, they say, is about making fun of people about enjoying how awkward and foolish some people can be and feeling superior to them. 
Some of these critics have noticed that laughter involves baring our teeth, just as animals do before they attack. That's visible evidence, they say, that laughter is rooted in hostility and aggression. As Freud said, it's a disguised way of venting these feelings. At various times and places, people have been taught that laughter is vulgar and mean-spirited and something we ought to avoid. It may even be a way of scoffing at religion and mocking God. To some degree, it's true. Bullies, racists, and, and bigots use laughter to make fun of people, to ridicule them. It can be very painful to be on the receiving end of that kind of laughter and to find yourself encircled. But it can also be painful, too, to be a member of a group that's doing the laughing, especially if you want the group to accept you and you're not comfortable with what they're laughing at. Laughter becomes a form of oppression and abuse, manhole-lid laughter, laugh-rape. Generally, however, people have a much more benign impression of the place of laughter in our lives. Unless it's hijacked for some malicious purpose, laughter is usually regarded as wholesome and good, a natural expression of pleasure and happiness, good for our mental health, good for our physical health, too. There's the celebrated story of Norman Cousins, a well-known writer who was editor-in-chief at one time of the Saturday Review of Literature. In the 1960s, at the height of his career, Norman Cousins developed a rare collagen disease. The effects were like a bad case of arthritis, terrible stiffness and soreness. It was very painful and debilitating, and the doctors gave him almost no hope of recovery. Cousins believed in the power of negative and positive emotions. So he decided to prescribe a treatment program for himself that was fashioned around laughter. Instead of loading up on painkillers, he watched old Marx Brothers films and candid camera tapes. He discovered that 10 minutes of good hearty laughter were worth two hours of pain-free sleep. For a while, the symptoms actually went away, almost entirely, and surprising everybody, including his doctors, he resumed his routine and went back to work. Cousins must have been a character. One time when he was in the hospital, a nurse interrupted his breakfast and handed him a bottle for a urine specimen. It's the kind of tasteless thing they like to do in hospitals. <laughs> when she wasn't looking, Cousins poured apple juice into the bottle and gave it to her. She looked at it and said, a little cloudy today, aren't we? <laughs> Taking the bottle from the nurse, Cousins held it up to the light. By George, you're right, he declared. Let's run it through again. And he, put, and he put the bottle to his lips, and he took a swig. The most widely accepted theory of laughter holds that incongruity is the chief element in determining what we find funny. We're amused by things that don't fit together, facts that collide with our expectations and have a shockingly delightful effect. It's the result of the amusement we feel when something takes us by surprise, when things are out of joint, out of alignment, 
That's what happened to us when we went to that movie. We went directly from joking around and lighthearted conversation and walked in on a very serious moment in the movie. The sudden emotional intensity seemed unreal, silly. It was a very funny moment. There's a book entitled Taking Laughter Seriously by John Morial, a philosophy teacher. Morial had a friend who was a practical joker. The friend visited one evening, and early the next morning, when Morial was still fumbling around half asleep, he opened his refrigerator, and there was a bowling ball in there. <laughs> Morial stood back and roared with laughter. And then he got to thinking, the incongruity of a bowling ball in his refrigerator was funny. It had made him laugh. But he wondered what if his friend had planted a cobra in there or a boa constrictor. Laughter would not have been his initial reaction. Other instincts would have taken over. So he decided that incongruity and surprise don't make you laugh all by themselves. The surprise has to be pleasurable, gratifying. Laughter is a result, he decided, of a sudden and pleasing psychological shift. Laughter has many causes, he noted, tickling and physical sensations, genuine amusement, triumph over adversity, sudden happiness, the contagion of hearing others laugh. It's a sudden and pleasurable psychological shift. A number of years ago, Belv and I drove up behind a big Buick it was sporting a vanity license plate that said hot chicks. The word chicks was spelled C-H-X. Behind the wheel was a guy who had to be at least 80. <laughs> and his passengers were three elderly blue-haired ladies. It was a wonderful image. What delighted us most of all was this car full of seniors laughing at themselves. Humor has an amazing leveling power. It attacks artificial distinctions between people. It overturns pretensions, exposes vulnerability, humanity. A sense of humor loves the image of a priest standing appreciatively in front of a painting of a naked woman. It is tickled by the Queen of England with hiccups. It's amused by a big lemo sitting by the side of the road, disabled, steam billowing from beneath its hood. It's not funny when somebody falls down, but when it's a man in a tuxedo or a woman in a gown and furs, and it's pretense and dignity that are injured, the effect can be hilarious. Humor grows out of the inconsistent and the irrational, and it expresses itself in ways that defy reason and logic. Things happen in jokes that don't happen in real life. In real life, the farmer never invites the traveling salesman to sleep with his daughter, and talking dogs do not come into the bar and order a drink. <laughs> in this serious part of our lives, we treat ambiguity, inconsistency, and contradiction as problems. We try to resolve them, but humor revels in them. It celebrates the ridiculous, the chaotic. It attacks the assumption that we have things figured out and that we live in a straightforward, sane and logical world. A lot of people seem to think of comedy and laughter as diversions from the serious issues of life, a break from ordinary chores and duties. 
But people who relegate humor to the margins of life don't get it. They are, I am afraid, humor impaired. A sense of humor ought to play a role, much larger role in our lives than that. It can and should affect the way we experience almost everything. A healthy sense of humor is an essential component of a full and balanced worldview. It enables us to be honest, skeptical, and tough without growing bitter and losing our zest for life. It is a concession to insanity that keeps us sane. After all, the funniest stuff in the newspapers isn't in the comics. It's in the rest of the paper. This week, I read, for example, in our own Harrisburg Patriot about Tom Corbett, Pennsylvania's new Republican governor. Corbett, if you don't know, is, is our equivalent of Scott Walker and Chris Christie, our budgetary Mac the Knife. But according to this article, our frugal governor Corbett has found a place on the state payroll for the elderly father of his campaign manager as head of the Turnpike Commission a position which conveniently pays close to $200,000 a year. In the same paper, I read that Tokyo Electrical Power Company reported, erroneously I hope, that it had issued special ankle-high protective boots to several workers before they entered knee-deep radioactive water. <laughs> yes, and I read that Muammar Gaddafi once published a book in which he claimed to have discovered the solution to all human problems. He called it the third universal theory. The news these days is filled with horrific events, but in, around, and under them is the unfailing comedy of human existence. We are nuts if we think we can draw a line between the serious and the comical. Crazy to think there are serious times when it's totally inappropriate to laugh, and lighthearted times where serious issues have no place. We can't chop our lives into neat little packages like that. They come with everything thrown together like a salad. At ethical culture memorial ceremonies, we eat from that salad. Instead of presenting one-dimensional eulogies and tributes, folks stand up and share full-bodied memories of the person who has died. Some of these memories may be comical, memorable, candid camera moments. And even with tears in their eyes, people laugh. To those who have never attended such a gathering, the idea of laughing at a memorial service may sound disrespectful and out of place. But the effect is really quite the opposite. You come away realizing that the person who has died was appreciated for who or she uh, he or she really was, you have encountered genuine love. There's a book entitled The Courage to Laugh, and it's filled with wonderful stories of people laughing in the face of illness, suffering, death, and loss. The book's by Alan Klein. It's been around for about 15 years. Alan Klein's wife died of cancer, and that had a lot to do with writing the book. In the book, Klein remembers his wife in the hospital looking at a copy of Playgirl magazine. <laughs> she asked him to take out the nude centerfold and put it up on the wall of her room. <laughs> Alan hesitated. Don't you think it might be a little risque for a hospital room, he asked her. 
Nonsense, she said. Just take a leaf from the plant over there and cover his genitals. So that's what he did. And it worked fine for a couple of days. But, but by the third day, the leaf had withered to the point that it was revealing what it was supposed to cover. It became a joke between them. Al and his wife laughed after that every time they saw a plant with a withered leaf. <laughs> Laughing and weeping, Alan told the story of the withered leaf at her funeral. Alan Klein tells other stories about people who are dying and their families. She, one is about a hospice patient who decided that she would stop eating. For several days, she didn't eat. Then all of a sudden, one morning, she got out of bed and joined her family at the breakfast table. They were surprised to see her, and they asked her, why had she changed her mind and come to breakfast? The frail, elderly woman looked at them, and she said, so who wants to die on an empty stomach? <laughs> Alan Klein also relates a story told to him by a woman whose mother had Alzheimer's. Although she and her mother weren't talking a lot anymore, she attempted to discuss a serious subject with her. She asked her mother, what would you like the family to do after your death? Would you like us to cremate your body or bury it? Oh, the mother answered her, surprise me. Humor loves the illogical and the absurd, and it gravitates toward this stuff not just because it's entertaining or because we enjoy turning everything upside down and inside out in order to create a comical effect. No, there's more to it than that. Humor has deep roots in the basic realization that life doesn't make sense and that there's a comic quality to our whole existence. The human race is a product of the same process that gave us sharks, turkey buzzards, and dung beetles. We feel very strongly about our own importance, yet the universe shows no particular regard for us. We emerged out of nothingness, and we shall disappear quickly enough and silently enough into that dark womb. I had a friend who was a Unitarian minister in the middle of a discussion after one of his talks, a member of his congregation asked him, what's the meaning of life? People gasped and tittered that anyone could be so naive as to ask such a thing. They were embarrassed by the question, but they were curious, too, to see what he would say. Well, my friend answered, everything, every living thing has a powerful urge to reproduce, but I don't know why. That was all he said. Some people laughed, but not everybody. It was an answer that captured the absurdity of everything. I think that's why dark humor, gallows humor, and the sick joke occupy an important place in the arena of laughter. The late John Callahan, whose cartoons appeared in Penthouse and Esquire, I see some nodding with familiarity, never shied away from making a joke out of being deaf, blind, and crippled. One of his cartoons features a trainer standing in front of an aerobics class for paraplegics. 
Okay, let's get those eyeballs moving. <laughs> In another cartoon, a posse is chasing an outlaw, outlaw, and they come upon an empty wheelchair. Don't worry, one of them says. He won't get far now. <laughs> Callahan, uh, Callahan and his publishers receive buckets of hate mail from irate readers. The cartoons are downright insensitive and cruel, they said. They're shocking and tasteless. But Callahan saw it all from a different perspective. A paraplegic himself, he drew his cartoons amazingly with his crayons pressed between two non-functioning hands. Woody Allen built a reputation for laughing at his fears, his insecurities, and his mortality. I don't want to gain immortality through my films, he said. I want to gain immortality through not dying. <laughs> On another occasion, he confessed, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> There's a wonderful story of two old men sitting in the park. If I go first, one of them said, I want you to come back and tell me what it's like. I'll do better than that, the friend answered. I'll leave the door open for you. One of the primary functions of traditional religion is to help people avoid facing the absurdity of life. Armed with powerful myths and ceremonies and holy scriptures, they support the illusion that our lives occupy a central place in God's eternal plan. They assure believers that we're all here for a purpose and that we're going to live forever. Incredible energy goes into sustaining illusions, holding them together in spite of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. A little pretense and self-deception isn't such a terrible thing. We can all use a pair of rose-colored glasses from time to time. But we're talking about an illusion that envelops people's entire lives and enables them to deny the tragic nature of our existence. Supernatural beliefs that keep us from appreciating the irony and the heroism of the human struggle to find meaning, purpose, and beauty in a life that is doomed from the moment of conception. People comfort themselves by singing, chanting, and repeating holy lies, and they believe that they have discovered the secret of happiness. But in fact, by avoiding the ultimate absurdity and tragedy of life, they are renouncing the very best that life has to offer, a gut-level grasp of what it means to be human, an ability to tap the deepest wellsprings of poetry, literature, music, and art, and to hear the sound of laughter reverberating throughout the cosmos. These religious believers don't seem to understand how the good life depends on experiencing the comedy that permeates everything. They never seem to discover that it's our ability to laugh at the cosmic joke that makes this crazy journey worth taking. Belva and I celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary, not by eating ice cream with little spoons, but by having dinner in a restaurant in Denver with friends. 
After dinner, we climbed into their van, opened the sunroof, and took a little tour of the city. As we headed out on one of the main streets, I stood up, and with my upper body protruding from the van, held out my hands the way the Pope does, <laughs> made the sign of the cross, and blessed the city. People on the sidewalks pointed and grinned. Some bowed their heads in mock reverence. Others laughed and crossed themselves. I enjoyed making fun of the Pope and his Pope-mobile, the idiocy of it all, the robes and the gestures, the crowds, the adulation. Perhaps somebody out there that evening took offense and didn't think it was the least bit funny, imitating Christ's holy vicar. God would punish me for that, wouldn't he? And everybody else who happily, happily joined in. We were all guilty of being childish and laughing when our teachers and parents were scolding us and saying, that's enough, stop your laughing, it's not funny. But I must confess, even as I was role-playing, I felt a certain power. It was as if I had become the Pope. I was blessing the city of Denver and the people, and laughter was the correct way of receiving the blessing. <laughs>